This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. We know wars are devastating, destructive events that bring unimaginable suffering to individuals, communities or nations. Wars are often brutal and bloody. But did you know that there are rules of engagement in war and that breaking the rules of engagement is considered a war crime which can have consequences for those who commit them? But who makes these rules and how do we hold countries accountable? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Devashis Base, Fellow at the Centre for International Law, Research and Policy and Deputy Coordinator of the International Criminal Court Legal Tools Project. Welcome to the show, Devashish. Before we discuss war crimes specifically, can you explain what international law is? Thank you, Darshan. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, just like we have domestic laws that govern our conduct in the society where we live and work in, international law is a body of law or a set of rules that concern states. International law govern how states conduct themselves with other states and within the society of states. These laws relate to everything from space to the sea, from international trade to the protection of the environment, from international telecommunication to international civil aviation, war, peace and human rights, etc. So a nation's laws, right? When we when we think about, you know, I, I'm in Malaysia, when we think about um, Malaysian laws or, you know, Japanese laws or Singaporean laws, whatever it may be, um, these laws are decided by the, the nation's governments, their parliament, their lawmakers, right? But what about international laws? Who comes up with a framework and, and is every country in the world subject to these laws, at least in theory? So chief among sources of international law is treaty-based law. The most famous example of a treaty is the United Nations Charter of the 1945. It is a treaty to which all states have signed and its obligations are binding on them. Another example is the International Criminal Court, which is also a creature of a treaty, which is the Rome Statute. And to give an example of the treaty-making process, A first draft of what would later become the Rome Statute was prepared by the International Law Commission in 1994. The International Law Commission is a body of the United Nations and its members are experts of international law which are nominated and elected by all states in the UN General Assembly. The UN General Assembly then established two committees to further discuss and work on the International Law Commission draft uh, of the Rome Statute. These committees were again open to all states who could send their delegates to contribute to the discussion and drafting process. Then in 1998, the UN called the Rome Conference, which was again open to all states and where negotiators sent by governments uh, from across the world after much deliberations and changes adopted the Rome Statute in July 1998. So there is ample opportunity for all countries to participate and contribute to treaty making. Apart from treaty law, international law also consists of customary law. These are international customs which are formed by a wide and consistent practice of the custom by states coming out of a legal obligation to do so. A third category of international law, uh, what could be called soft international law, serves more as recommendation than binding obligation on states. 
These are declarations of international organizations, resolutions of the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, these again invite broad participation in their making. States endeavor to follow these soft laws, but they are not required to comply. Have this concept of international law always existed? And when I say always existed, are we talking about was it present during World War One, World War Two, or is it a, a sort of um, new thing that was created perhaps in the over the past 30, 40 years um, in response to something? Uh, uh, can you unpack that a little bit more? These are not the rules which cropped out of nowhere. Okay. Right. That suddenly we had a war crimes regime uh, and people started following those. Uh, we had ideas of observing restraint and warfare that existed in the antiquities. There is some evidence from Egypt, Babylon, from ancient Greece, India and China and others regarding restraint and warfare. For instance, there were principles regarding not harming prisoners of war, etc. There were various customs of war present during Renaissance in Europe. However, the actual codification of laws started to be formulated in the 19th century. Uh, we had the Lieber Code from 1863, uh, which was formulated in the context of the American Civil War, then the first Geneva Convention of 1864, followed by Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907. And then we come to the modern day war crimes regime that is based upon the four Geneva Conventions of 1949 and the additional protocols of 1977. Similarly, when we talk about other branches of international law, uh, we have always had some sort of principles governing how states conducted uh, with others. So we had some basic minimum guarantees. For instance, uh, visiting emissaries from foreign states were always respected and uh, they were allowed to pass unharmed and they were allowed to return back to the, their country of origin. Uh, you can see such practice in ancient China, in India. You can see that there were exchange of scholars uh, and diplomats who would travel to these countries and report back to their home countries. In this way, we also have historical records relating not only to the politics, but also to the art and culture uh, of those countries uh, in ancient times, because such travel was allowed in those times. However, laws started to be fortified, written down in Renaissance, during Renaissance in Europe, and uh, we saw more wider application of international law during the age of colonial conquest, especially amongst the colonial powers. So in the way, the rest of the world was powerless in terms of international law, but the colonial powers amongst themselves, they, they, they had some sort of understanding. Right. But what exactly constitutes a war crime? And, and, I, and I ask this, right, because from a layman's perspective, um, it, it often seems like a baffling idea, war crimes, when war in and of itself, you know, is something that brings so much devastation, blood spill, and so on and so forth. So how do you define a war crime? Yes, uh, <laughs> I agree, Darshan. Uh, war crimes regime is complex. However, the core of it is quite simple. Let's let's first look at it like this. War is truly the worst of humanity. And the war crimes regime ensures that we remain human even at our worst. And that it does by trying to remove the excesses of war. So what are war crimes? 
In the simplest terms, war crimes are certain crimes that are committed during war. Now let's add more color to this definition by asking first, what is war? And second, which crimes? Right. War is, as people commonly understand, armed conflict between two countries. Like we see, for instance, the Russia-Ukraine war. It is what we call an international armed conflict, which is between two or more states. However, there are also other kinds of armed conflicts which are not between two states. Uh, these are non-international armed conflicts, which can include instances such as a civil war, where government of a country is fighting organized armed groups or organized armed groups are fighting amongst themselves. To give an example, Sri Lanka. It was in a protracted internal armed conflict with the separatist group Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. The war crimes regime also applies to such con conflicts. Right. Now we come to the second question, which crimes? Mm -hmm. These crimes include crimes against protected persons under the Geneva Convention. The protected persons include civilians living under enemy occupation, prisoners of war, wounded, sick, and shipwrecked members of the armed forces. The crimes against them include that of willful killing, torture or inhumane treatment or subjecting to biological experiments, willfully causing great suffering, extensive destruction and appropriation of property, compelling a prisoner of war or civilian to serve in the forces of a hostile power, willfully depriving a prisoner of war or civilian of the rights of a fair and regular trial, unlawful deportation or transfer. This particular crime is the subject of the arrest warrant against Mr. Putin and one another. And also the crime of taking hostages is a war crime. There are further war crimes regarding methods and means of warfare, such as employing weapons or methods of warfare that cause unnecessary suffering or cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. Moreover, there are war crimes regarding intentionally directing attacks on civilians, civilian objects, cultural heritage, places of worship, etc. The war crime regimes put a requirement of distinction and proportionality on the military planners or those who decide on the attacks. When planning attacks, a distinction has to be made between civilian and civilian objects and military objectives. Attacks can only be made on military objectives, which make an effective contribution to military action and whose destruction or capture offers a definite military advantage. Thus, launching indiscriminate attacks, that is, attacks which employ a method or means of combat which cannot be directed as a specific military objective, is a war crime. So, for instance, aerial bombardment of a whole city or an area where there are both civilian objects and military objectives uh, would be considered an indiscriminate attack because the method chosen here cannot distinguish between civilian objects and military objectives. Even when the object of the attack is a military objective, the principle of proportionality prohibits such attacks if they are expected to cause incidental loss of life, injury to civilians and damage to civilian objects, also known as collateral damage. There are many other war crimes, but I will stop here. What examples of war crimes have actually been prosecuted under international law? What was the action taken? We have had several prosecutions uh, under international law for war crimes. Mm -hmm. These date back uh, to the Second World War. 
In fact, the earliest example of war crimes prosecution come from the Nuremberg Tribunal. It was established by the Allied powers, uh, which included US, UK, Russia, in the aftermath of the Second World War for the trial and punishment of major war criminals of the European Axis powers. The war crimes prosecuted in the Nuremberg trials included murder and ill-treatment of the prisoners of wars and civilians, use of civilians as slave labor, wanton um, destruction of cities, towns and villages. The trials of 24 defendants uh, in the Nuremberg trials started in 1945 and ended next year in 1946 with 19 convic convictions on these counts. There were also war crimes prosecutions of major Japanese leaders of World War II at the International Military Tribunal for the Far East in Tokyo between 1946 and 1948. And besides that, thousands of low-ranking Japanese military personals were also prosecuted for war crimes in national military tribunals instituted in several countries, including in Australia, China, France, Philippines, United Kingdom, and the United States. Since then, we have had war crimes prosecutions uh, in the ICTY, which is the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. ICTY was established to try the perpetrators of crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes during the Yugoslav wars. It convicted over 90 defendants in various cases. One of the most notable war crime prosecutions to come out of ICTY was regarding the siege of uh, Sarajevo. Uh, the city of Sarajevo was held under siege for almost four years by the forces of the Army of Republika Srpska. The siege involved shelling of civilians and daily sniper attacks on civilians in a campaign to still terror on city residents. For these crimes, Radovan Kratic, who was the president of the Republika Srpska during the war, and Ratko Mladic, who was then the head of the army of Republika Srpska, was convicted of uh, murder, unlawful attacks on civilians, and terror as violations of laws or customs of war. There have also been several war crimes prosecutions at the ICC. Right. For instance, in 2012, Thomas Lubanga was found guilty uh, of a war crime committed in DRC of enlisting and conscripting children under the age of 15 and using them for to participate in actively in hostilities. So essentially, uh, he was convicted of the crime of uh, conscripting child soldiers. To give you a very unique example of, of war crime, in 2016, Al-Mati was found guilty of war crime of intentionally directing attacks against historic monuments and buildings dedicated to religion, including nine Muslims, many of which were UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Timbuktu, Mali, in 2012. Right. Um, you, you give very good examples, but what is the process like, Devashish? Um, so a country commits a war crime. Um, it breaks international law. It, civilians are dead. What happens then? How does the International Criminal Court and other authorities investigate and, and prosecute war crimes? So uh, a distinction has to be made here, which is that before the ICC was in place, right. uh, there was no permanent court to prosecute war crimes okay. on an international level. So what we saw in the case of ICTY and ICTR, that the United Nations Security Council, it saw the massive criminality involved and the 
level of victimization which was happening in these conflicts. And it decided to establish uh, these tribunals using its power given under the UN Charter. And uh, these tribunals were set up uh, far from uh, where the atrocities were committed. Uh, the ICTY was established in The Hague and ICTR was in Arusha in, in Tanzania. And, and uh, thereupon they began their investigation and prosecution process according to the statute uh, as was formulated by the Security Council. Uh, however, now we have uh, a permanent international court in the International Criminal Court. So normally ICC can only investigate and prosecute war crimes committed on the territory of state party to the Rome Statute or war committed by the national of a state party. Uh, to the state, there are 123 states which are party to the Rome Statute. States not part of the Rome Statute can also accept the jurisdiction of the court on an ad hoc basis, like Ukraine did with respect to crimes committed on the territory of Ukraine since 2014. Additionally, the UN Security Council can also refer a situation to the court, like it did for the situation of Darfur in Sudan, Sudan which is not party to the Rome Statute. Uh, the referral uh, for the Sudan situation happened in 2005. Once these uh, jurisdictional requirements are met, ICC prosecutor can begin investigation on its own motion if it is established that there is reasonable basis to proceed with an investigation or upon referral by states parties to their own statute. The prosecutor can also decide not to proceed with an investigation if there is no reasonable basis to believe that crimes have been committed or case will be inadmissible before the court because genuine proceedings are already going or have been conducted in the state which has jurisdiction over it. Or it is determined that the case is not of sufficient gravity to justify investigation. The court itself can also deem a case inadmissible for these reasons. So not all cases of uh, war crimes under ICC jurisdiction are to be investigated and prosecuted by it. Only those which are of sufficient gravity, that is to say of sufficient severity, uh, and where no genuine national proceedings are being conducted, can be tried in the ICC. So to dig deeper into uh, the actual investigation and trial process, mm -hmm. uh, once the investigation has started, the prosecutor can request the pretrial chamber to issue arrest warrant against the identified accused. If the accused is not arrested, the trial cannot start, since the ICC does not prosecute individuals in their absence. If the accused is arrested, however, the first stage is the confirmation of charges hearing, where the court decides upon hearing prosecution, the defense, and the victim's representatives if there's enough evidence for the case to go to trial. Once the case proceeds to the trial stage, uh, it is up to the prosecution to establish the guilt of the accused beyond reasonable doubt. And if it is successful in doing so, the accused is convicted and sentenced. The sentence could be up to 30 years and even for life under exceptional circumstances. If an appeal has been made, the final decision on guilt or innocence is taken by the appeals chamber. Thereupon, based upon the final verdict, the defendant may be released or sent to prison to serve the sentence. Right. 
where do where is this prison? Because you know, if I commit a crime in Malaysia, I mean, I'm going to be in Malaysian prison. But what about you know these kinds of war crimes at international levels involving multiple countries? Where do these individuals who are found guilty, where which prison do they get sent to? So uh, while the trials are ongoing, mm-hmm. uh, the defendants are obviously held in the Hague in the Netherlands at the seat of the ICC. And uh, upon their conviction, they are sent to a state with which the ICC has formed an agreement for enforcement of sentence. Right. So, uh, these could be various states uh, who have entered independent agreements uh, with the ICC with regards to incarceration of the uh, convicts of the ICC. On the show with me today is Devashish Pace, fellow at the Center for International Law, Research and Policy. After the break, we discuss the United States of America and why it's challenging to hold them accountable for their war crimes. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Devashish Base, fellow at the Center for International Law, Research and Policy and we're discussing war crime. So Devashish, recently the ICC uh, issued an arrest warrant for uh, Vladimir Putin, president of uh, Russia, for war crimes that he committed. Um, and then in response, Russia has now opened a criminal case against the ICC in response to the ICC's arrest warrant. Can you unpack this and and help me make sense of it a little bit? Before I get into the Russian investigation of the ICC, I just want to give a little background about the arrest warrant against Mr. Putin uh, to the listeners here. So uh, we know that early in March, ICC had issued arrest warrant against Mr. Putin and another Russian national. And these uh, arrest warrants are for war crimes of unlawful transfer or deportation of civilian population, namely children, as war crime. The unlawful transfer of civilian population under enemy occupation is a widely accepted war crime, since it is considered a grave breach of the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. However, Mr. Putin is the president of Russia. And as the head of state, he ordinarily enjoys immunity from arrest, not only in Russia, but across other states, since this is an established principle of customary international law. However, there is no immunity for heads of states from arrest or prosecution before the ICC. And the member states of the ICC are also under an obligation to arrest the suspect and surrender to court, irrespective of the official capacity of the suspect. So there is a treaty obligation right now on 123 state parties to the Rome Statute to arrest and surrender Mr. Putin to the ICC. The Russia's Federal Investigation Agency is called the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation. It is conducting an investigation now in connection with what it termed as, quote, illegal issuance of warrants for the arrest of citizens of the Russian Federation by the ICC, end of quote. I'm not aware about how this investigation will proceed under Russian law and if any Russian laws may be applicable with regards to the ICC arrest warrant against its national for crimes which constitute grave breaches uh, of the Geneva Convention to which Russia itself is a party. 
So it, it remains to be seen how this investigation proceeds now. What would you say are some of the challenges involved in prosecuting war crimes, particularly when it comes to gathering evidence and bringing perpetrators to justice, right? Especially the the latter part, bringing perpetrators to justice, because like you said, there are layers to this, right? If it's if it's the maybe if it's like a small fry, okay, easy to bring them to justice, but then when it comes to their leader of a country, you have challenges there, and so on and so forth. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about these challenges? So uh, prosecution of war crimes is extremely challenging. I mm-hmm. mean, right from the collection of evidence uh, to its preservation and analysis by experts. For instance, when one is collecting evidence of means and methods of warfare, uh, the collection of evidence and its analysis can be very specialized. Consider the crime of directing attacks on civilians. The investigators may have to collect remnants of armaments and weapons used and enlist military and forensic experts to to analyze the type used and the damage it caused to civilians and civilian objects. All this evidence could be thousands of kilometers away from the seat of the court, creating logistical issues in the management of the evidence. A unique feature of contemporary conflicts is that war crime investigations occur while armed conflicts are still ongoing. While this provides for an abundance of evidence, it also creates issues of safety for the investigators. Another recent development is the widespread use of mobile phones by actors in the field to photograph and film battles and attacks. Uh, This has been seen especially since the Arab Spring. This has given rise to open source investigations where online footage and pictures available on the social media are analyzed both by professionals and freelance investigators as evidence of war crimes. The open source evidence can be voluminous and could only be available for a limited amount of time before it's taken down by social media operator for violation of its own user guidelines on violent content. Uh, At the same time, the authenticity of the open source evidence can be questionable. Now, there are tools that can be used to create fake pictures and videos, termed as termed as deep fakes, right. uh, which can be used to mislead the investigations. Beyond evidence, there are several challenges with respect to witnesses. Identification of victims and witnesses, uh, their protection, preparation for trial, while ensuring that the process does not cause further trauma for the victims can be a daunting task. Since the court is usually in another country or continent, Witness tampering could be a major challenge too, since the perpetrator may still exert influence or have resources in the state where the witness to war crimes is located. And talking about securing the arrest of the perpetrators, Mm -hmm. that is a major issue. Um, In the ongoing ICC investigation, there are currently about 14 accused which are at large. And uh, the court itself doesn't have a police of its own. It relies on member states to cooperate with it, to secure the arrest of the accused and surrender that accused to the state. So the ICC is, in a way, at the mercy of the member states to follow through their obligations under the Rome Statute, which they are required by law to do so. However, there could be uh, political considerations which may prevent them from following their own law. 
Exactly. And that's the, the interesting part um, of this whole topic that I want to start diving into, right? Because at the end of the day, laws, agreements, like you said, you know, treaties and, and whatnot, that, that people just come together and they agree, agree with it. But whether it can actually be implemented and carried out effectively depends on all participating members, right? And and in, in a global um, situation, you're talking about some countries being friends with one another, some countries, you know, are not allies with one another, so on and so forth. I'm wondering, how do political considerations, um, such as the need for diplomatic relations, affect prosecution of, of war crimes under international law? Yeah, so this is another challenge. Uh, but here, I just want to make sure that uh, listeners know that the international law, particularly treaty law, is binding on states. Right. It becomes part of their domestic law. So when they choose to not uh, carry out these arrests and surrender the accused to the ICC, uh, they are in a way violating their own domestic law. But this is not something new. Even if we look beyond the context of uh, international crimes, if we just look at ordinary domestic crimes, uh, we can see sometimes that authorities may not be fully complying with the law, particularly in countries which may not have a very good rule of law situation there. Uh, so we have been seeing uh, the conflict of political considerations versus the need for justice for quite some time uh, with regards to uh, war crimes under international law. This is most apparent when it comes to securing the arrest of accused holding official capacity, such as a head of state. The ICC has had to face this issue with respect to Mr. al-Bashir, who was still the head of state of Sudan when the arrest warrant was issued uh, for him in 2009. He's still at large. Um, several regional organizations, including the African Union, they condemned uh, the issue of arrest warrant against him. Uh, Mr. Bashir was able to travel freely to several ICC member states while the arrest warrant against him was in effect. These members, uh, member states refused to arrest and surrender Mr. Bashir to the ICC, despite being required by the Rome Statute to do so, and I believe they did it uh, so as to not affect uh, their diplomatic relations with Sudan, but also not to invite the anger of uh, other African countries who may feel that an arrest warrant against a head of state could be a step too far. Can you discuss the relationship between power dynamics and the application of international law to war crimes? Because it seems to me like, um, you know, all the examples you gave earlier, right, um, of people that have been successfully, uh, uh, you know, prosecuted, they come from perhaps relatively smaller countries or they, they have um, relatively smaller positions in bigger countries and, and so on and so forth. But it, it seems to me like countries such as the United States never, ever get held accountable for their actions, right? We're talking about the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, etc., millions of innocent lives were killed. Um, a report from uh, Brown University, um, the Cost of War Project, revealed that in the 20 years um, since 9-11 happened, um, wars uh, by the United States have cost an estimated of 8 trillion US dollars and killed more than 900,000 people. Millions more people have been displaced. All of this sounds like serious crimes, innocent civilians have been affected. Uh, what is your perspective of this? 
So uh, there are several issues here. Mm-hmm. The first of it is uh, the challenge of jurisdiction that uh, these international courts of creatures of treaty uh, and as such they may not have jurisdiction in every instance such crimes are committed. However, in in at least two of the situations you just discussed, uh, that is of Afghanistan and, and Iraq, uh, the ICC had jurisdiction uh, because both these states uh, became party to the Rome Statute. So it is pertinent to discuss the Afghanistan situation here. The Afghanistan situation was under investigation by the ICC in a long-running preliminary examination. The OTP, which is the Office of the Prosecution Prosecutor, was focusing on three crimes. First, crimes against humanity and war crimes by the Taliban. Second, war crimes by Afghan security forces. And third, war crimes by members of the U.S. armed forces on the territory of Afghanistan and by CIA in secret detention facilities in Afghanistan and on territory of other state parties to the Rome Statute uh, during a period of 2003 to 2004. According to the prosecution, there was a reasonable basis to believe uh, that since May 2003, members of the U.S. Armed Forces and CIA have committed the war crimes of torture and cruel treatment, outrages upon personal dignity, and rape and other forms of sexual violence pursuant to a policy approved by the U.S. authorities. On this basis, the prosecution had sought to permission of the pretrial chamber to open the Afghanistan investigation and proceed to trial. However, this request was initially rejected by the pretrial chamber on the basis that it would not serve the interest of justice for several reasons one of which was the low prospect of securing meaningful cooperation from relevant authorities in respect of investigations and surrender of suspects. However, this was overturned by Appeals Chamber, which allowed OTP to proceed with investigation. In the meantime, U.S. had reacted sharply to the court's action by cancelling then-prosecutor Ms. Fatou Bensouda's U.S. visa and then released an executive order enabling visa restrictions and economic sanctions on ICC lawyers and investigations and those who cooperate with the ICC uh, on the investigation of U.S. personnel. This was followed by actual sanctions being imposed on the ICC prosecutor and another high official in the office of the prosecutor. In 2021, after Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, the office of the prosecutor decided to focus its investigation on crimes by Taliban and deprioritize other aspects of the investigation, namely crimes of Afghan armed forces and U.S. armed forces and CIA. So for now, uh, you can say that the ICC is not focusing on uh, the crimes by U.S. armed forces and CIA in Afghanistan. However, it is open for them to do so at any point in future, especially when the current investigation on crimes by Taliban progresses further. To also discuss the uh, Iraq situation, there there was an ongoing investigation in the ICC regarding uh, war crimes committed by UK personnel in detention facilities of Iraq. However, that investigation was also closed by the prosecutor who decided that there was not enough grounds for that office to proceed 
with an investigation since the UK was itself conducting some domestic investigation and prosecutions with relations to acts alleged in Iraq. With respect to the US and other powerful nations, there are other challenges. The most powerful nations of the world have made themselves immune from international accountability of their actions by not subscribing to the treaties that will ensure that. In cases of nations with robust and independent domestic institutions, one can still hope that there will be some accountability in terms of court-martial proceedings against perpetrators, civil society protest, parliamentary inquiry, etc. However, one would never see criminal accountability for the higher-ups, particularly since uh, laws uh, on immunity may bar domestic prosecution of high officials, and there may be very little appetite to do so in the establishment. Uh, however, the situation is even worse in authoritarian states where there is absolutely no accountability. Even the most humble protests there will be met with suppression by the state. Amongst the non-signatory uh, states of the Rome Statute, you will find most great powers of the world, USA, China, Russia, India, etc. For the three of these, which hold the permanent position in the Security Council, uh, there can not be any enforcement action from the UN Security Council, and as such, they do sit beyond accountability. However, the rest of the world, as it aligns themselves with the progressive development of international law, is encouraging these states to drop their opposition and embrace the idea of international accountability. The Rome Statute, as I've said, gives primacies to national jurisdictions, and as such, states do not need to fear that their nationals accused of war crimes will be tried in The Hague automatically. As long as these states are able to genuinely prosecute their war crimes accused, the ICC cannot step in, and thus I believe that these states should drop their misgivings about the ICC and join the Rome Statute. Can organizations such as the North Atlantic Treaty, NATO, commit war crimes. So this is an example always shared by um, Indian historian Vijay Prashad um, on NATO war crimes, right? Um, so he always says uh, in various of his lectures, uh, his, his speeches, even some of his book, he talks about how on the bombing of Libya, when the UN asked NATO if it could get materials for an investigation, NATO refused. In fact, NATO's legal advisor, Peter Olson, wrote that and I quote, uh, NATO incidents cannot be treated as war crimes, end quote. And indeed, um, that seems to be the default position or, or narrative from the West, isn't it? When other countries do it, it it's savagery and, and violations of human rights. But when the West does it, it's an act of liberation. From your uh, perspective, um, how do you see this? Can organizations like NATO commit war crimes? Well, any individual can commit war crimes. And what is to be seen here is not for what reasons a war has been waged, uh, but whether in waging the war for justified or non-justified reasons, are the uh, war crimes regime being followed? So you have to see if the international humanitarian law and its principles are being followed by the parties to that conflict. So we have to see if the methods and means of the warfare uh, that have been deployed uh, are in compliance with the international humanitarian law regime. And, and I believe there's a great responsibility on military planners across the world to ensure that their military actions comply with international humanitarian law. And organizations such as NATO, they should take this responsibility and discharge it with transparency. 
I believe uh, states should not hesitate or international organizations should not hesitate in explaining to the world how they have complied with IHL in their military actions. And if there are instances where they may not have been complied with IHL obligations, they should investigate and prosecute the personnel involved. So I want to end this conversation by asking perhaps a little bit of a philosophical question, and and that is where do we go from here? Because while I personally am in favor of international law, I think it's fantastic. All these treaties are highly important. It's like you said, you know, throughout this conversation, when it comes to the realities, the biggest superpowers of the world are not held accountable. So where do we go from here? Is international law, especially in relation to war crimes, still relevant? Um, And now that we are shifting from a a, a unipolar world under the the global police, the United States, into perhaps a a more multipolar one with various regional powers, we see the the whole rise of China, the US-China trade war, um, new alliances being formed. How do you see all of this with relation to the topic that we just discussed? I think the relevance of international law and war crimes regime has become even more important, acutely important, uh, in the face of a multipolar world. Uh, so in a multipolar world, there's, I believe, immense uh, potential for conflict and, mm-hmm. and disagreements to arise because there is no hegemon uh, on the global level who could coerce states into compliance. So I I believe we need robust sets of international rules uh, to which all states agree to and and abide by. Uh, It is important in order to ensure international peace, order and stability. Uh, We need means of specific settlement of disputes. Uh, I believe there should be abundance of international laws and rules that can facilitate uh, uh, the settlement of disputes through arbitration and and other means of dispute resolutions uh, so that states don't have to resort to uh, war or other illegal means to settle their disputes and conflicts. Rather, they can go to a court uh, like normal people do when they have a dispute. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Darshan, for inviting me. That was Devashish Base, fellow at the Centre for International Law Research and Policy. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.